Hello EB-5 investors, this is Floyd Mitchell with EB-5EB-5.com and welcome to episode 2 of the EB-5 Investor Portal podcast, recording on Tuesday, June 27, 2017. Today's episode is titled, Origin of Funds and EB-5 Investments. Our guest is immigration attorney Andrew Johnson of Law Offices of Andrew P. Johnson in New York, New York. Mr. Johnson was a government prosecutor until he entered private practice in 1998. He has authored numerous articles on immigration and international litigation, some of which have been published by the American Bar Association and the American Immigration Lawyers Association. In addition, Mr. Johnson has been featured in the New York Times, quoted by the New York Daily News, and interviewed by CBS News on the topic of immigration. He has represented large corporations, nonprofits, and small companies in all aspects of immigration law. Mr. Johnson has spoken to business organizations in conferences around the world on the various strategies for immigrating and sending employees to the United States. Mr. Johnson practices immigration law exclusively and is an active member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Andrew is admitted into the United States Supreme Court, 1st, 7th, 9th, and 11th United States Circuit Court of Appeals, New Jersey District Court, and the State Bar of New Jersey. Today, he will be sharing information about origin of funds in EB-5 transactions. Andrew, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us today. My, my pleasure. Happy to talk about the most primary issue with uh, EB-5 applicants, which is the origin of funds. Can you share some insight about origin of funds and why issues or challenges tend to present themselves with this particular component in EB-5 investments? Absolutely. And there's two issues with origin of funds. One, sometimes applicants think it's no problem whatsoever, and then they realize after going into detail there are some problems based on those countries' specific tax laws. And two, some clients think they absolutely cannot prove their origin of funds and realize once they talk to uh, an attorney who's done this for many years, there's absolutely many avenues in which you can prove origin of funds. So with that information, let me tell you about the basic requirements. Origin of funds simply means how to prove that the money was obtained legally for USCIS purposes. And that's the most important because a lot of people explain that in my country, it was obtained legally, and, it's, and the government knows it's obtained legally. However, it might not be considered legal origin funds under USCIS regulations. So when the general rule about legal funds or legal origin of funds is you have to come from an origin in which it was earned or legally obtained. And let me give you some examples. Uh, an easy one would be real estate. A uh, house was sold, and the proceeds of that money is used to show USCIS the legal origin of where the money came from. You also can do it from inheritance, uh, just simple savings, investment, business profits or business salary, gifts from relatives or friends. And also you can use all types of variations. And people don't understand that you might have 10% come from inheritance, 10% come from business profits, 10% come from savings, all the way through. You don't have to have it come from one source. And there is one other issue that often people don't fully understand. They simply say, okay, I'm selling a house I've owned for two years, 
and therefore that's the profit, and I'll show that and prove that as my origin of funds. But because it's a recent sale of the house, USCIS will want to know where that money came from to purchase the house two years ago. If it's a home 20 years old, the requirement for documentation is showing how that money was earned. It's much less and can be uh, usually drawn from affidavits or statements by, by the applicant. In your experience, how would one go about showing detail for the origin of funds on a transaction that dates back 20 or 30 years or more? And can you tell us how secondary evidence may be helpful in situations where the origin of funds date back so long and the investor may have a difficult time producing the proper detail to satisfy USCIS requirements? Now, first of all, we, in our ideal world, if it's 20 years, try to show all the way and actually how the money was earned 20 years ago. You're, you would have to show how the money was earned, even if the house is owned 30 years or 40 years. The issue is, is it's just easier. Usually you can show, okay, this money was earned by salary, and here's, um, you know, my father had worked for a company, and he made roughly $20,000 a year over 10 years and then bought the house in 1992. It usually can be established that way. So you always still want to establish it. But it becomes, I guess, the best way to explain it is if it's two years ago, it's clearly you should be able to find where the money came from two years ago. If it's 15 or 20, you can do it with what they call secondary evidence. In other words, not maybe directly from bank accounts where the money was transferred over because people might not be able to have records of that bank account. So I apologize, this is not an exact answer. We want to do our best to approve the money from a direct source as best we can. It's just USCIS usually does, accepts what's reasonable, and it's reasonable to show by affidavits and statements how the money was earned 30 years ago to purchase the house, and it's also reasonable if the house was bought two years ago to actually show where it came from out of bank accounts. I'd like to clarify for our audience, are origin of funds in EB-5 investments an item that only immigration attorneys work on, or do other players get involved in this area at all? Very good question. In fact, it's our primary role. The, the, other, the other parts that we have to do are quite easy, it's just identification documents and so forth. But no, the investment banker, the regional center, they specifically don't want to go into that issue because... It's a legal issue and requirement by USCIS. So that is actually, that's the most important job for the immigration attorney. And as I had mentioned before, if the, if the applicant can prove origin of funds, there really is almost no other issue to make them ineligible to file for the EB-5 program. What are some of the common problems or misconceptions clients have with origin of money? Most, most clients naturally earn money let me give you an example. If they earn money through business income and it goes into their business account and they move it over to their personal account, then they take that money, obviously, and most people don't keep 500000 or 300000 into their personal account and let it sit there. The money will either be spent um, on cars and jewelry and just living expenses or the money will be invested in stocks and then the money is purchased stocks or investments, and then someone might cash out on that investment and then spend it on someone, something else. Now, often clients say to us, 
well, I can, I've made 750000 over the last two years. I can prove that. But the problem is they can prove it from their business account to their personal account. But then since the money has been used or sent out and or spent, they have to be able to show how they can bring that money back into their personal account to USCS. In other words, it has to be fully tracked back. And the reason why it is a difficulty is, especially with things that you expense, that's sometimes very difficult. A lot of clients have money from sources that we can't use for USCIS where they want to refill their personal account back up. They can say, okay, I can put 750000 back into my personal account. But the problem is, is they can't show where that money came from, they're just refilling in sense the 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 personal account. And often after we have those discussions, it's easier for the applicant to almost do another business deal in order to get the money back into the business account, moved over to the personal account and have it stay there. And with a lot of businessmen that's actually quite easy. So that issue, obviously, is what I had mentioned before. Some clients say, oh, well, I make $500,000 a year. This should be no problem. It goes from my business account to my personal account. I have it in investments and so forth. Well, they have to be able to legally show how that money's properly brought back into their business account without being replenished by money that's from, uh, and in a sense, an ineligible source or an untraceable source. And I know that gets a little complex, but that's what they really have to be worried about if they want to use money that they have saved or earned in the past, of where that went to and where it needs to go back. We have to draw it up in a sense where we actually kind of track it and write up exactly the pathways and sometimes even graph it up on the computer to make sure we can we can show the legality of it. And then we usually circle the sections or the amounts of money that would be considered questionable. And then with that, we might say, okay, we have 75000 that we're, it's going to be untraceable. It's trying to find another source in order to prove that money, which is often quite easy to do. Can an investor sell stock or other assets to come up with the investment required? Absolutely. And, then, and you know, it, it, I, I, I don't want to make it too difficult. If, for example, they earn income through salary or the business they own, they move it to their personal account, uh, and then they purchase stock. Then they sell that stock, goes back to the personal account. We have legal origin money, no problem whatsoever. The problem is, as I mentioned earlier, often that money gets moved from stock. Three years later, it's, it's sold and goes to another stock, or then sometimes money is pulled out and expensed. That's what I'm saying. When it has three or four multiple transfers, you have to bring it back through all three of those transfers to go or trace it back from all three of those transfers to show the legality of it. So, in essence, USCIS wants to know where the funds came from. They want to know that they were obtained legally. And a large part of your role as an immigration attorney representing the investor is to assist them with this critical aspect of the EB-5 process. Absolutely. And what we do is we, we explain what we can explain right, right here. But also the, the client would tell us, okay, this is kind of my portfolio, which I think I can use. And they would then tell us where and how they got certain sets of money. And then between us, we would choose 
the easiest routes we believe that they could take, which would have the least amount of tax consequences to them in their own country. Because remember, USCIS doesn't evaluate tax consequences in foreign countries. They don't know the tax law. They don't want to go into that. And everything's done outside. So we give the applicant the best few options we believe, and then they choose which option they want to with the least amount of tax consequences in their country. Does an immigration attorney help an EB-5 investor optimize or reduce their tax obligation in some cases? In some sense, they are, our clients will know their tax laws from their country much better than we are. We have a general idea of what it is. We just want to make sure there's no tax problems within the U.S. and the simple, and we don't do anything special. We just say don't do the transaction or the gift transfer in the United States. Once that occurs, then they usually pick the route um, of how they want to do it in, in their own country. Some, you know, some, for example, if there's three or four pathways we can choose, and let's say if it's in India, they get hit with high real estate taxes, they might want to avoid a high real estate tax sale to show that much profit. And that's just an example, but we defer to the clients on their tax laws. Can you share with us some of your solutions where the applicant experienced difficulty showing how the money was legally earned or they just could not produce the necessary paperwork? Absolutely. And that's and what I said earlier, when we would just say, lay out your portfolio, and that's a, probably a business term, but lay out all, all where your money is right now. Then we go over every possible option. And then even if, let's say, there's, an extreme difficulty with everything they told us, we often go, okay, you're often wealthy or have wealthy relatives and wealthy friends. It might be easier for a wealthy friend or relative to simply gift you, gift you the money. We had a, we had a case uh, where it was, it was very difficult to, to show any, any tracking. As I mentioned, the money was earned, but it was transferred out in so many variations and, and been out and, and resent to different places over the years. That the person said, well, I have a friend who uh, is, is a salaried employee but kind of owns his own business but is also salaried by a um, company based out of Singapore. And our client was um, Bangladeshi. So that friend who had some control over the, over the business he was getting salary payment simply told his boss, look, I run this operation in Bangladesh. Advance me $300,000. He already had 200000 and 250000 saved. So his boss, like I said, uh, who he was, who had an excellent relationship, just advanced him and just, well, we wrote a letter from that uh, business saying we're advancing our employee two hundred or $300,000, and that was it. And then, in fact, we, he wanted the money to be wired out of Singapore and not wired out of Bangladesh, which is often common. So the, not, the nicest thing about that is that money that we used the, we didn't even have to try to move out of Bangladesh. The money and transaction was wired into a Singapore account uh, and to our, to our client's friend, and he then just gifted it to his friend in another Singapore account, and the person wired it to the regional center. That was one way to deal with it, and although that might sound fact-specific to that case, you would be surprised how many... Uh, people in the wealthy field who can who can afford five hundred and fifty thousand have friends or relatives who have a much better way to show their how they legally earn the money uh, because it might have been some recent real estate sale by a, a relative or a friend 
or a friend might have a business that does import-export that might easily uh, earn $700,000 on a, on a business deal. So, for example, your friend goes, okay, he does three or four deals a year. Well, we would just show the contract on that deal, show that $700,000 earned. That friend puts it into his business account, moves it to his personal account, and then gives it to our client. And often in those in those occasions, especially when you get our client, and I, you can use our client for that. So our client, if our client has a um, often an international business where they buy and sell, or they have a friend with an international business buy and sell, and they don't want to deal with the money inside their country, they can set up deals where they have a transfer. Okay, we you know we do these um, contract sales or import uh, farm equipment. Well, they can do the transfer where the farm equipment goes to a country with, which the, our applicant lives at, our applicant friends lives at, whether it's Bangladesh or India or um, Pakistan or whatever country. But the the money can go to a place where they want it to go. Like the money could be transferred to a Kuwait bank account, and we just show the contract that says, okay, this import farm equipment deal between an Indian client and um, another person from whatever country, because that's the seller. And the and once that transfer occurs, we want the money to go into this Kuwait bank account, and if that's in the initial contract, then they actually can keep the money out of the country, which some countries, Vietnam is another example, really don't want money coming in if they're going to do that transfer. So USCIS does not care if the person's Vietnamese, Bangladesh, and India, or Pakistani, and a business deal occurs where the money is transferred to their account or to their friend's account in Kuwait and then moved from Kuwait into the U.S. government regional center. So that's another way where people can avoid taxes or, which we might deal with in another podcast, restrictions how to transfer money out of that country. So it sometimes, it sometimes solves two separate problems. If the funds are gifted to your client from a friend or family member, or in some cases multiple friends and family members, and let's say one family member owns gold and sells their gold to get the funds, and maybe a brother of the investor sells a house and gives the investor a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so through a few sources, this investor puts together the money required to make the investment. Do you have to prove the origin of funds from those original family members and friends that are gifting their money to the investor? Do you have to produce some sort of diagram or flowchart with supporting statements or affidavits? And you're exactly right. You, you, for, so for everybody, as, as I mentioned before, so let's say the applicant can't prove his legal origin of money. So he's just going to work off gifts from relatives and from friends. You're right. Each relative or friend has to prove their origin of money. We've had to do one, I think one case we had close to 18 different sources, and we had to prove origin of money from 18 different sources. So when that relative says, I'm gifting to you $50,000 for this, we have to show how that relative earned the money. And often it's not that hard. It might be salary. Okay, I receive a salary that's wired into my account, um, and here's my last year wiring, and here's $7,000 a month from that savings. I am giving them 50000 That might be an example, or what you had stated. A person um, has, a relative has gold. They said, I you know, earned this gold, or this gold was transferred through my family. Through this many years, we would have an affidavit or a statement proving that. 
and then 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 we would show uh, that as that original transfer. So each one, in a sense, would be a for legal terms an exhibit. Exhibit A, fifty thousand dollars transfer to applicant, and then we'd have on on the top of that exhibit the gift. So it's a it's a simple gift letter. It's nothing uh, nothing involved. And the gift letter goes, "I'm giving fifty thousand dollars." Gifting fifty thousand dollars to my friend or relative in order for him to to apply for the EB five program. Underneath that would be proof of how that person earned that fifty thousand dollars. What do you say to the investor listening today who has the necessary funds to invest in EB five, but may think that they just can't prove their origin of funds and may feel that they never will get approved and thus just never apply? We've had people in the past who have told me just that, you know, Mr. Johnson, there's there's no way I've looked through things that I can trace it. They're just my country doesn't allow it. It just doesn't work that way. First, we obviously go to the option, as I mentioned before, we'll, go, we'll talk to your wealthy friends and family members and see if that's an option because that, that like I said, usually clears up the problem because of the, if you're wealthy, like I said, you have wealthy relatives or friends. The second option is if they don't have anything and they're and they are wealthy and they have this, we simply tell them, you know, you can you can go ahead and sell property, or you'd have to you can go ahead and create, in a sense, a new business deal. If they are import exporters, and everything goes through their business account, and this is very common, especially people who have accounts in Kuwait, there is no in other other countries they don't do they don't have personal accounts. They do everything out of their business account, which is completely legal within that within that country. So they say, look, nothing comes for me my, for my business or personal. We would tell them, okay, it's time to start gathering and putting your deals together and, and collecting them in your business account, new deals. And once you have 550000 based on new deals into your business account, I want you to open up for the first day a uh, personal account and move that money into your personal account. USCIS has to have that occur, although it sometimes seems silly to some of our clients or unnecessary. Even if they open up a personal account one day before they wire the money to the regional center, they have to do it. It's just a sign the money came from their personal assets rather than their business. So as you stated before, we usually can find a way, even if the applicant doesn't believe there is a way, to prove the legality of the money. What are some examples of secondary evidence that can be used in providing origin of funds detail? Let's use an exa- uh, a direct example of that. And, and I'm just using gold for the reasons of this example. But there's other issues. For example, if someone has, has a house uh, 30 years old that can, cannot prove at all how they purchased the house, uh, 30 years ago, uh, I always speak about Vietnam because their documents are very limited. In other words, there's almost no real, there's no real estate contract. Often things were written in scrap paper or there was no documents whatsoever. So secondary evidence is literally an affidavit from the person who bought the house, uh, the relative who bought the house or the, or the applicant themselves saying 30 years ago, I purchased a house for this amount of money. I paid it on collecting my salary because I worked as a professor at a university. Uh, we didn't we didn't keep our money in banks at that time because our country didn't have banks. Or, uh, especially with Russian cases, a lot of the banks in the 90s had closed, so they cannot pull any evidence whatsoever for that reason. So they often give an explanation. You know, there was no banking system in Vietnam in the in the 1980s. 
in the Russian case, they would say most of the banks closed in the 1990s. There was no records kept. And then they provide statements from uh, themselves or whoever actually had the transaction. Like another example is, is we had someone who had gold from their um, – from they actually owned it, but it was from their parents. And the father had passed away in, I think it was late 1988 or something. And they did never put the gold anywhere. They kept the gold at home. So the gold was, uh, the father had written a note in Vietnamese that stated, you know, I am giving my uh, gold that I have to my oldest son. It's simple. And a scrap scrap piece of paper, just a handwritten note, and we use that plus a statement by the, the, the son, the applicant, uh, who is now 50, 50 years old, saying I, my father uh, gave me through inheritance uh, gold, who I, which I you know, three years ago deposited, and it, it was worth, uh, when I say deposit or cashed out, it was worth $240,000. And here's the best records I have from that direct deposit, whether it was a receipt by... The, the person, the the business, the gold business might have given them a receipt, or sometimes they can even get a, a letter from the, the people that they sold the gold to. But even if they can't, they often, a letter themselves writing what happened can be what we call secondary evidence. Just to clarify, when you use the term statement, you literally mean it could be a pen or pencil written on a piece of paper. Am I correct in assuming that? It doesn't have to be on some official document or form to be accepted by the USCIS? Absolutely. And I've always told my clients, what USCIS requires documentation evidence which is reasonable. And if if, if if housing transactions occurred in the 80s and 90s in Vietnam, where they literally just transfer and give each other money on it and maybe, like I said, get a deed at least uh, from the government or some documentation. That's all the evidence that's available. That's all the evidence USCIS can expect. And what I say, when you said scrap a piece piece of paper on pencil, absolutely right. We do like to give the background of of the situation in Vietnam. We have country conditions that, that talks about the banking system in Vietnam, how it was rarely used. No one trusts trust the banks. Banks didn't even exist in the 1980s. We, 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 provide, we can provide an article about, um, a newspaper article roughly that explains what, how, how sales were done in the 80s and 90s in real estate, whether it's uh, in India or Bangladesh or Pakistan or some of those countries. Now, once again, if we're talking about Germany, now Germany is... is the expectation would be to have a paper trail if you're dealing with in 1992, to have some type of document. And even if those banks were closed, let's say someone who, even in, in Germany, used a bank but can't get records from that from that bank in 1992, they're going to have real estate documents at least showing the sale. And that's, that, that probably would be expected. But a lot of the countries, and I would say the majority countries that do EB-5, those type of direct documents are not expected if they're 15 or 20 years old. Do experienced EB-5 immigration attorneys assist clients in producing historical documents that may support their origin of fund detail, such as old newspaper clippings, as you've mentioned, or official statements from their respective governments? Yes, absolutely. And and the nicest thing, we've done so many that we, we kind of already have the documents. We use we use it previously. I mean, we have articles explaining the 
banking system uh, of, of that country at the time, if, if need be. Also, and the country reports, all that's quite simple to get the background because if it's a national program or national issue, there's clearly been you know, reports written about it. The I also want to um, mention that that often people say, okay, I earned the money, my father earned this money to purchase the house for because he worked 20 years as a janitor from you know 1970 to 1990. Well, the father can write if the father's alive, he can literally write, I worked as a janitor for this school, you know, this time. If they can get a letter from the school, that would that would be also great, but the school could have closed down. So in a sense he's saying I can't even prove anything whatsoever where I got my money, but I worked as this job and I'm writing a statement this is how I earned my money and this was my salary per month and this is the money I used to purchase a real estate house. So what I, salary statements are also very valuable when you want to have to prove secondary evidence. Can applicants use money sources in countries other than their citizenship? Absolutely. And it's, it's I would say, pretty common. Often, often clients uh, from these countries have bank accounts already in foreign countries. So it's already there to do the transaction. Just and, and the reason they're usually doing that is it's just a little more difficult to move money out of their country. Uh, as I spoke before, people who have, uh, people in some of those countries use a transfer agent to move it out if they don't have accounts in other countries. But back to, the, one, they can have an account in Singapore, they can have an account in Kuwait, and the money coming from those countries to USCIS is, is not an issue whatsoever. The, they also can open up a brand new account in Kuwait and Singapore, and USCIS ha does not have a problem with it. They don't say, wait a minute, why did you suddenly open an account? Because US, USCIS knows there's absolutely restrictions for uh, countries moving money out of that country, and they expect the applicant to go ahead, as, as I stated before, to sometimes use either as their transfer agents, which have to move the money outside the country, or to actually use accounts outside the country. And, you know, for example, I gave you the standard standard Chinese cases are where they loan or gift $50,000 to a le to 10 friends or relatives within within China, and then that money is often moved, that 50000 is then gifted back to the applicant in a Hong Kong or Singapore account, and the money is then moved to to a U.S. regional center. That's I would say extremely common, and Chinese are probably 50% of all applications. So that's nothing that, that raises red flags within USCIS regulations. They actually expect that. Can investors take loans out, either personal or commercial, to invest in EB-5? A very good question. And, th and once you said loan, I have to give you the recent regulations. So in... USCIS allows loans. So first I want to state that. But generally, U.S. immigration attorneys say let's avoid loans in, in every possible way for this reason. The, the case law has, has tried to delineate or clarify, and, and the, the best way to explain it is USCIS requires if someone tries to take a loan to show that that for based on collateral has to be based on collateral. And that loan has to be paid off 
within two years. So as an immigration attorney, USCIS is going to give a request for evidence and just delay the case, um, we believe, or sometimes, to show, to wait until that loan's paid off. We, we do everything we can, and we usually can work around it to avoid any loans. A loan is a red flag, not in an, as an illegality, but it's for USCIS to challenge it. So what you said, you know, can they sell off a piece of their factory, that's great. But if they, they're going to a bank on a mortgage too, a lot of people want to just not sell the home but take a mortgage out on it. So absolutely legal but problematic because they eventually have to pay off the loan within two years. So, and, it, and you know, the case, the case is actually run a year to year and a half. So they're eventually going to have to go ahead and pay it off. It just, like I said, it, it definitely stops from a clean approval and we do everything we can to avoid a loan because since that's to be paid off in two years, we're just adding kind of an extra problem to our, uh, to our application. What advice do you have for investors out there that know very little about EB-5? They just know that they have the funds and they want to become an American citizen. They want their children to go to better schools. They want to have access to better health care. They want to participate in the American dream, but they know nothing about this process. Where do they begin, Andrew? If you can't prove origin of money, it doesn't matter what regional center you like or what your what your plans are, you first have to prove origin of money. That once you prove origin of money, then then all it becomes is what regional center you want to choose. So absolutely, it comes to us. And also, I I I know this is a side issue, but it's kind of related to everything. Is often some people, some very rich, are worried about tax consequences, and sometimes they have their wife. Uh, do the do the EB-5 program because just what you said, they want to bring their child, children over and go to U.S. schools, uh, get all the benefits uh, with that, and they but they themselves don't want to be taxed as a green card holder. So what they do is they do everything we had spoken about, and their wife does the EB-5 program because every every all the money that the father earns, he just gets to his wife, and then she just and then she just wires, and then they both wire the money to the regional center. In other words, there's no there's no extra transfer needed when the wife just wants to do it. So the whole family sometimes becomes green card holders, and the father then just comes back and forth on a, on a B visa. And sometimes they like to do that for a temporary time because the family's going to become U.S. citizens eventually. And at any time they can, once they become U.S. citizens, they can bring their father over as U.S. citizen as a green card through family and immediate relatives. So sometimes the father's like, I don't want to be taxed for the next five years as a green card holder. I want to construct my assets in a way to once I become a green card holder, there'll be no or no tax consequences or limited tax consequences. So that's another angle, which is quite easy for us to do. What do you recommend an investor not do with their funds as they prepare to apply for the visa through the EB-5 program? Are there any recommendations you give to the majority of your EB-5 clients to help them improve their chances of an approval? Absolutely. And you, for the first advice is, and I, you can't imagine how often I make people ignore me on this. Do not move your money or transfer your money anywhere if you're, if you're thinking about this EB-5 program until you talk to an immigration attorney. I can't tell you how many times clients have moved money to different, let's say, to a Kuwait account um, from, their, from their home country 
and say, okay, but I have this money in Kuwait. I'm all ready to go. And I, after I had them, don't move the money. And then, then we, then we trace it back, and it's uh, and you, and they didn't properly prove the origin of money. So they either have to move all the money back or reconstruct a whole another uh, situation. And the whole point is, as I stated before, for their for the, to, to reduce their problems, they talk to attorney, and then the attorney helps plan them out of how they want to deal with transfers and prove origin of money because sometimes it's a, it becomes a giant headache on their side because they have to move all the money they tried to transfer to different places and so forth back to the origin to redo everything. So that's the biggest no-no, and I can't tell you how often that has happened, is do not, do not move money or even do, I apologize, and do a, or do a transaction for the EB-5 process until you discuss that with an attorney because the attorney has to go first that's a good way to go ahead and prove the origin of money or we can go that route and and second i make sure i go if you do that route can you get these documents to support this transaction or this sale if it's yes and yes and the route is correct we can go ahead and go forward but there's a lot of those things that you speak to an immigration attorney where we actually help them plan it out once it's planned out then they can execute the plan. But to try to do it in the middle is disastrous. I think you'll agree that a lot of the negative press that the EB-5 industry sees stems from unlicensed brokers and agents who are misguiding these investors. The investors should instead call an immigration attorney. Is it safe to say that the investors should not rely on any information they've heard from unlicensed brokers or immigration agents? My understanding is that a lot of these investors are just wiring $500,000 into regional centers without having an investment banker or a licensed broker-dealer review the offering. Can you speak for a moment about safeguards and the proper way for the investor to go about this? Absolutely, and and you're right. I've heard I've heard stories to that effect. One of the money's already been wired into the U.S., which you know is just shocking to me without any you know map or route or instructions by an attorney. And like you said, there's some middleman, shady middleman that I don't even know. I I barely can grasp their job title. It's it, there are some really bad situations, and, and uh, mo- an attorney like who who does this a lot. When the client tries to ask prices on and what do they charge and so forth, we stop them. We go, wait a minute. We're not taking your case unless we can prove origin of money because we, most, most attorneys who actually specialize in this field obviously get referrals based on approvals. So it was, it, it, when, when clients jump over that step, it, it's, it's worrisome because, first of all, you don't have, they shouldn't do it at all until they can prove origin of money. So they prove origin of money as the first step. And then from that step, as, as you said, do not deal with anybody unless they're a licensed broker. But they first can walk around saying, okay, I've spoken to my immigration attorney. I now can prove the origin of money. My next step is, is to choose a regional center. But it definitely should be that in that order. And if it's not, like I said, there could be a lot of problems and a lot of unnecessary problems where the person could have a legal way to prove the money just with an easy route, but they would want to first make sure that's set in order before they take any other steps. What is your advice, Andrew, for an investor who may have already wired the funds into a project before hiring you or an immigration attorney? 
maybe they've kind of gotten the cart before the horse, so to speak. What do you do in those situations? Well, no. They, so if the money's moved over, uh, we we backtrack it. We go first of all, how did you, you know where the money come from? And then they have they haven't explained. They explain it, and then if we can piece it together the best we can. In other words, first of all, first of all, as I had mentioned before, we make our sometimes we make our clients wire the money back. In other words, if it there's no way to prove it, we would call the regional center and say, by the way, that's that money. Like I said, the case is going to be denied. So we explain that to the regional center. And most likely, a respectable regional center is going to be very willing to move the money out with the hopefully expectation that they clean it up. When I say clean it up, means money goes out and then they find a different way to either use different money or to show how that money correctly came uh, came in a, in a better route. So most regional centers will return the money back to let them redo it. Now, this is hoping we're not dealing with a deadline because sometimes they have a USCIS acts like they're going to raise it three three hundred thousand and then does not. And I don't know. As you can tell, I'm a little scarred. For two years, they had promised that for every September 30th. So we have a lot of rush time. And that that last two months is a little stressful because we have to hit that deadline, and then USCIS says they're not going to do it. Once again, the same the same issue is this year. We're not sure if they're going to raise it, but they have explained they will. But but if the client says back to your question. Okay, I, I have six hundred thousand. I'm not moving it back to my home country. I'm going to go forward with this. We would look at it, and if there is less than I would say sixty percent chance of success, we probably won't take the case. We would just tell them it's just ridiculous. Why would you do this to you? But hopefully, it's, hopefully it's not utterly disastrous. And and you know you would think they would have some some way. We would like I said, we would sit there and go, okay, we're going to try to piece this together. We think your your chance of success is 60%, 65%, and then we'd go forward on the case. With our other cases, um, with our other cases, we 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 least explain to our clients when they ask the percentage of success. We can tell them, like with respect to origin of money, we can tell you that issue is a hundred percent. Ask if, if if they ask our opinion of that, and that's how we can construct most cases. So we give them that uh, that assurity on uh, it because we've done so many cases. We know what immigration will challenge and what they accept. So we can really tell them, or we can tell them, look, there are some issues here. There's a high percentage. You might get a request for evidence on that, and then we'll come back with more supporting documentation if they if they're worried about this part of the origin of funds. So we can do a lot of predictions on that issue. But once again, if they follow our instructions from the onset and our pathway, usually there's no issue whatsoever. Andrew, thank you for this great information and your time today in helping our investor audience understand the importance of origin of funds. What can you say to the investor listening who may feel overwhelmed by this information or who may feel as though none of these examples apply to them? I guess the best explanation is they shouldn't give up when they, even when they've seen me talk about all these examples, the foreign pilots have heard me talk about all these examples, because I'm worried that the applicant's like, all right, I don't fit into any of those. I have no chance for EB-5. Well, it's just, I'm not going to go over the hundreds of cases, you know, each each individual case and, and provide examples. There's hundreds of thousands of ways you can prove origin of money. 
you just have to look at that individual situation, and there is a extremely high chance that we can figure out a way to prove the origin of money. So I don't want people to go all his examples I don't fit into, therefore I'm not eligible for the EB-5 program, and I just don't want to give that impression. It's probably the exact opposite. If you have that type of money, there's a good chance that we can prove origin of money. So even in the most complex situation, there is hope and the possibility of an approval for investors who follow the right path and guidance of an experienced EB-5 immigration attorney like yourself. It, exactly. We, we've, seen, we've seen so many situations and prepared cases that were very complex with complex transactions or numerous origins of, of funds from different locations and different sources that, that were comfortable in setting up a plan that we have seen be successful already since immigration and already been approved. So we believe we can go ahead and give them, like I said, a, a game plan or a map of how to go about it to prove their origin of funds. Well, we've reached our time limit for today's episode. But I'd like to quickly recap what we've learned about origin of funds. In preparing to make an EB-5 investment, it's really important to not start moving your funds around until you speak to an immigration attorney who can assist you in coming up with a plan and outline. Although loans are allowed, U.S. immigration attorneys advise against them for EB-5 investments as they may delay or complicate the process. Even when you think you may not be able to prove origin of funds, there are options, such as secondary evidence, that may be used to help you with your case. You may receive the funds necessary to invest in the form of gifts from friends and family members. With the proper guidance and counsel of an EB-5 immigration attorney, you'll greatly improve your chances of an approval. Please note, these are generic instructions and hypotheticals as every EB-5 applicant's case is different. Every potential EB-5 applicant's origin of funds needs to be analyzed by a qualified attorney who has experience specifically in the EB-5 field. This podcast information should not be considered as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. More on Andrew Johnson may be seen at lawapj.com. It is imperative for investors to have talented immigration counsel, but also strongly consider only looking at EB-5 investments, which are also represented by a securities firm, to be in compliance with U.S. laws. It's great to have them on the team and at no extra cost. Please visit eb5eb5.com to learn more about the EB-5 Investor Portal and how we may help you in the EB-5 application process. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to having you on the show again real soon. Okay, excellent. Thanks, Floyd.